end of our uh, short series in the book of Isaiah, uh, we will, Lord willing, we will end uh, at least the first half of our series by the end of this year. Uh, as you know, uh, this is, uh, <clears throat> uh, w- w- the book of Isaiah is broken into two parts, 1 through 39, and then 40 to 66. And so I will end the series with chapter 39. We'll do a little survey uh, next week, and then uh, we'll have a Christmas Day service uh, uh, the following week. Then I will go back to a New Testament book. Uh, we'll, we'll go to new, sometime in 2017, and then when we complete that New Testament book, we'll come back and we'll uh, look at 40 through 66. So uh, if you can't wait to find out what happens, we'll feel free to read ahead. Um, in fact, that'll be my assignment to you, uh, as those of you guys that uh, are studying Isaiah with me. Read Isaiah 40 through 66 uh, in the coming year, and you know, do it. Put in your devotions, your guide, and read uh, one chapter, one chapter a day, or one chapter a week. Now that'll give you uh, one chapter every other week. Uh, 40 to 66. That's like 20, 27 chapters. So about half the year. Wow. So we can come to our last and final passage in the book of, uh, in the first part of Isaiah, in Isaiah 38 through 39. I hope you've been blessed by uh, what you've been learning through Isaiah. I know I have. Uh, um, sometimes uh, it's the, one of the most challenging things for those of us who teach the Word of God is that week in, week out, we, we teach the Word, and it's, it's uh, very difficult to always apply God's Word to our lives. It's very easy to just kind of handle it as a, as a, a weekly thing, part of our job, if you will. Uh, but the Lord, uh, who loves us, <laughs> makes sure that we apply God His Word to our lives. I mean, even last week, uh, I was uh, had a couple uh, series of circumstances in our life uh, where it caused me to remember, wow, here I am feeling really stuck, and and it wasn't you know nothing life threatening. Well, could have been life threatening, but that's not the point. Uh, but I felt, uh, I just, I came to that place where I realized, oh man, I need to remember what God's word said. And I went back to just kind of remembering, I need, in fact, it was Sunday afternoon, so I need to remember what uh, God's word said this past morning. And I was just reminding myself that how I needed to trust the Lord. So uh, I hope that uh, you have been encouraged, and just as I've been encouraged, uh, we have a great God whom we can trust. Well, let's take a look then at Isaiah 38 through 39. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Pray that you would open your word to us, cause uh, your spirit to fill each of us, grow in our, and be, to come to understanding of your word, its truth, its meaning, its application to our lives. Father, may your spirit convict us of how we need your word, how we can grow in our love for you, and grow in our appreciation for the God that you are. Lord, also, that you will cause us to be people who live in light of your truths, who live in light of a, of a coming judgment that is not only uh, upon just a few or some, but coming upon this whole world. And we pray that uh, this morning's message would cause us to be sober-minded, uh, to be alert, and to be watchful, to be prepared for that days are coming. Father, we ask that you would... Particularly minister to your people. I know that in this room there are many who go going through various trials, various circumstances in their life, some overwhelming. And we pray that your word would encourage them, strengthen them, 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> As we learned in our previous sermons, the narrative that is found in Isaiah chapter 36 through 39 serves as a transition between the first and second half of Isaiah's vision. Chapters 36 and 37, if you remember, are, are concluded the promised judgment at the hands of Assyria. And where chapters 38 to 39 that we'll look at this morning introduce the coming judgment at the hands of Babylon. What is interesting, sort of, as we look at and we compare and contrast chapter 36, 37 with chapters 38, 39, is that we read, when you read it, it, we sort of think that it's in chronological order because it's narrative, it's historical narrative. It's a story, right? So we just expect that 38, 39 must come after chapters 36 to 37 chronologically, time-wise. But they don't. As we'll, uh, as we'll see in a little bit. 38 and 39 that we'll look at today actually take place, as far as chronologically, historically, before chapters 36 and 37. And that's just significant, and that's just important to know because when you see things that are out, or it's not a mistake, the Bible's not, God doesn't make mistakes as far as the Bible is, but it's intentional. Because really, when you tell a story, you usually tell it in chronological order. You, there's a, that's just natural. And so when you tell things out of order, as God does here, there's a purpose to it. And we want to understand the purpose to that this morning. We know that this particular chapter, chapter 38 through 9, is out of order because in chapter 38, verse 6, there God is going to promise to Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, to deliver Jerusalem from the king of Assyria. And if you recall the last verses of chapter 37, that's exactly what God did. He delivered King Hezekiah and Jerusalem from the king of Assyria. So the promise to deliver him comes in 38 to 39. So certainly 38 to 39 must come, therefore, chronologically before chapters 36 to 37. And this happens in other places in uh, in the Old Testament. It happens uh, It happens also in the gospel, some of the gospels as well. Scholars actually believe that these events here in chapters 38 through 39 take place uh, within a year or two prior to Sennacherib's invasion of Judah. So perhaps, or even, I'm sorry, his siege of Jerusalem. So therefore, uh, maybe it it's, takes place while Sennacherib's army is marching towards Judah, or maybe it's already beginning the, the conquest of the various fortified cities of Judah. So it's probably taken around that time. So this morning's passage then prepares God's people for coming judgment. It, it's, at its simplest, what its purpose is, is that it serves to, in, to instruct the people of God, instruct uh, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, the, the, the city of Jerusalem, people in Jerusalem, the people in Judah, of why the Babylon is going to come to judge them, to warn them of this coming judgment of Babylon. They, uh, they will be. They are in a time period. This written in a time period where they're just going to be delivered from Assyria. They're recently delivered from Assyria. So why then? Uh, and so they may think that all is well, but God prepares them, telling them that there is a coming judgment as well. Now, for us, how, how does this apply to us? Um, in a sense, it too prepares us for coming judgment. 
Certainly, God has not promised to cast us out of the land like the nation of Israel. But yet, in truth, in reality, every single person on this planet, you and me, here, and the people around the world, outside of the church, are all facing a coming judgment of the Lord. As the author of um, Hebrews writes in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Uh, when we die, we're all going to die. That's the reality. After we die, there is going to be a judgment, a judgment of each and every one of us. Christ is going to do that judgment. And so the judgment that is coming upon us is, the, that is, is death. And it's not only death, it's started by death, but then followed that by, that by a judgment of God. And this is a judgment that comes upon us as a result of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. So this passage, hopefully as we'll think about, as it, prepares, as it prepared God's people for the coming judgment of Babylon, may also give us principles that prepare you and me to face the coming judgment at the hands of our Lord himself. A little bit of review. At the end of chapter 37, uh, Jerusalem had been spared the terror of being conquered and enslaved by Assyria. The people uh, were not forced to leave the land uh, that their God had promised to their forefathers. So they were excited. And it was a great deliverance. They were, it was a great victory. 185,000 soldier, Assyrian soldiers were destroyed without them lifting a finger. However, because of Judah's sin, the day was coming when God would send them out of the promised land. He would send them into captivity at the hands of Babylon. And these two chapters serve then to explain to them of this future judgment and prepare them for it. As we look at this, uh, these two chapters, I was thinking, boy, I was, I was very tempted to preach them in three sermons, okay? Uh, there's a lot of practical application, especially for those of us that are nearing or, or going through illnesses or, or facing death. Uh, you know, I'm pretty young, but man, this year has been a year of death for me. And I, Starting with my own father's death, and um, yeah, I, I think my cat's dying too. <laughs> I know, I know, it's kind of funny, but I actually feel I feel a little sad about it. And uh, it reminds me of my own death this year. Uh, honestly, I've been wrestling with my own mortality. It's been great. It's been great, terrifying, but great because it's been reminding me why I need Jesus. And um, so those of you who are in our midst who have been facing death, have faced death this year even, wrestle with death. Uh, those of you that are a little bit older, you, you're drawing near and you know that you could see it's just right over the horizon. Um, it's more than just songs that we sing, isn't it? It's, uh, it's a... It's the reality of this living in a fallen world of sin. And we want to be prepared. We want to face this final trial well. And I believe this passage prepares us for that. We see three scenes in the life of King Hezekiah that prepare the people of God for the coming judgment. For the coming judgment. 
The first scene is Hezekiah's healing. Hezekiah's healing. I was tempted to just entitle this Hezekiah's predicament just to keep the, the you'll see the alliteration later, but I'm going to call it Hezekiah's healing just to make it very clear. In these first eight verses of chapter 38, we see this miracle of King Hezekiah that happens to King Hezekiah that he's healed by God. First of all, as we look to the text, we notice that what is he healed from? Well, Hezekiah faces a serious illness in verse 1 of chapter 38. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Hezekiah had become sick to the point of death. And we don't know, know exactly the nature of this, uh, this illness. We don't know what it was, except later on we find that when the, uh, one of the uh, effects that it had upon him was that there was a boil on his body. So some sore or that was uh, maybe had uh, become uh, infected. So the Lord sent a message for Hezekiah from, through the prophet Isaiah to set his house, house in order, to basically get ready because you're about to die. Now the truth is all of us must eventually die. And none of us, though, are going to get a message from God where he says, well, get ready, you're going to die very soon. But in a sense, God's word does that for us. The reality is that we are all going to die. We're all going to die. We see it from the very beginning, from the fall in Genesis 3 to Genesis chapter 5. I love that chapter 5, that long genealogy that just reminds us people of the, the father after father after father lived so many years and then died, lived and died. Well, the Bible is a, is a reminder, a constant to us, as well as with life, that we are all going to die because of our sin. We shall surely die. Very few of us are in the midst of facing our own mortality, though, even now. I think uh, I've, I never uh, faced it until, like I told you, this year. It often takes, though, a, a serious illness for some of us. Some of us who can get very ill, and some of us are very ill at this moment. Some of us, it's a death of a, someone very close to us that makes us think of our own mortality. When that time comes, when you face the reality of mortality, your own, the, the, the reality of your, your death, inevitable death, it will test your faith. It will test your faith like no other trial. Because dying is the final trial in this life. Hezekiah's illness caused him to face a trial, a trial of, that would test his faith in the Lord. And we can be encouraged by Hezekiah in his response in verses 2 to 3. We see Hezekiah's response 2 to 3. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Hezekiah <coughs> responds with trust in the Lord and looks to him in prayer. That's what he does first and foremost. And we see this in the life of Hezekiah uh, very, very often. Two things stand out in his response of his prayer here. First, he reflects upon his life as he prays. He turns to the wall, he prays the Lord, and we only have this one sentence that's recorded. Perhaps he prayed other things, 
But perhaps this is all he prayed until he began to weep bitterly. But he reflects upon his life here first. He talks about how he's walked in truth before the God with his whole heart. And that's what trials do. <coughs> he makes It causes us to reflect upon our lives. Because when we go through trials, sometimes we wonder, is this trial happening in my life because of sin? Is it because of my own sin? Has it been something that I've done that God is disciplining me for? But as Hezekiah reflects upon his life, he knows, I mean, no one is perfect. But as he reflects upon his life, he knows the pattern of his life is one that is where he has walked in truth with a whole heart. He's walked rightly before the Lord. And we know this in, the, in other places in, in the Kings and Chronicles, that Hezekiah was a, one of the good kings of Judah. You know, there were all the northern kingdom kings were evil, and, all, and some of the southern kingdom uh, uh, kings were, were evil as well. But there were a few, a handful, that were good, and Hezekiah was one of them. His father, Ahaz, was evil. His son, Manasseh, was evil. But Hezekiah was a good king. So the illness was not a result of sin. Secondly, though, he reacts, he reacts to his illness. His illness. He reacts in his prayer with bitter weeping. He wept a great weeping, literally. I just love that he put that. It's, it's, this is almost as, as powerful as that verse where it says, Jesus wept. The reality of the human response to tr- difficulties and trials or death is to weep, to have sorrow. And when we go through trials... It is human to have emotions, isn't it? It's human to have emotions like fear and sorrow. And uh, learned in the past that emotions are given to energize us, to motivate us, to, to action. The question is, does it, will we allow our emotions to motivate us to right action instead of wrong action? When we're afraid... God allows us to experience fear so that we might respond by looking to him for security. When we're sad and sorrowful, God allows us to feel sorrow so that we would be motivated and energized to look to him for comfort and joy. Hezekiah's great sorrow. He's weeping bitterly. You know, have you ever wept bitterly recently? In this world, I would imagine there are times when you weep bitterly. Hezekiah's great sorrow, his great weeping, needed great comfort. And that great comfort he knew could only come from his great God. And so he's praying. He's crying out to God. Not too much more is said in this prayer, but the implication of this, of this crying out to God is that he just doesn't want to die soon. He doesn't want to die. A little bit encouraging here is that even in the midst of our prayers, um, when we pray to God, God doesn't require long prayers from his people. He doesn't need you to repeat it over and over and over and over. Sometimes he just wants you to cry out, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And we see God answers. God answers this short, brief prayer in verses 4 through 8. <coughs> Hezekiah's answer is received. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, so uh, it's kind of neat. It's, if we go to the, sec- the parallel passage in 2 Kings chapter 20, there actually you get the clear picture of how uh, Isaiah comes, tell him you're going to die, get ready your house, and then Isaiah leaves. And so then Hezekiah starts to pray. And so while Isaiah is walking off, it's at that point that God tells Isaiah, no, go back. I want you to give me this word to him. So it's like, it's like, it's not very much time has passed. It's like Isaiah just walking back to his house and all of a sudden, no, go back. God tells him, go back because Hezekiah is praying. I want you to give him an answer. He comes back and he says this answer. See, God, God answers Hezekiah's prayer immediately here. And I love verse five. Let's read, let's read this whole text. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has spoken Behold, I will cause the shadow on the stairway, which has gone down with the sun on the stairway of Ahaz, to go back ten steps. So the sun's shadow went back ten steps on the stairway on which it had gone down. So we see God's answer to Hezekiah. And I love what he says to him, I've heard your prayer. Man, you ever, when we pray, do you just want to know? You ever feel like, oh man, I want to know God hears my prayer? I would love to, he would just let me know that he's heard it. God hears your prayer, though. That's the fact is God does hear. He hears everything. And he sees your tears. I love that. God not just hears your prayers, but he sees your tears. God is the God who's going to one day wipe away all our tears. Until then, he sees your tears. He knows your sorrow. He does for Hezekiah. God is a God who cares. He's compassionate for his people. Now, his answer to Hezekiah is a twofold response. Number one, he says to him that he's going to, uh, he will give Hezekiah 15 more years of life. (coughs) He will heal and deliver the king from his imminent death. Hezekiah will, will eventually die. But it will be um, not until 15 years later. So that's the first thing. That's the first request. But uh, uh, in a sense, a little unexpectedly, but important for the interpretation of this passage, is that the second response, verse 6, he tells Hezekiah that he will deliver Jerusalem also from a serious attack. And we already talked about where this is taking place. Sennacherib is likely already marching upon Judah, if not already conquering some of the fortified cities uh, throughout the land. Hezekiah would have, being a, a great king, one of the greater kings of, of the southern kingdom, would have had uh, reports, would have had his, his uh, people give reports of what's taking place. And knowing that Assyria is a marching upon him, God gives him a promise that the king of Assyria will not succeed in taking over the city. God will defend the city. God will deliver him. He will save Jerusalem and Hezekiah from the enemy, Assyria. 
And in verses 7 to 8, then, God gives a sign to confirm his word. Uh, this miracle that takes place. And I just have to throw up a picture. I found a picture of the sundials. And there was a sundial there kind of in the room. It might have looked like something like this. Where uh, in the middle, there's that kind of like calm. It's just you've seen sundials. Usually there's a, something in the middle. And then the cast a shadow as the, as the light moves around the room. You could probably even uh, in this room, because you know, we have a light coming in, just where the light is shining in our, uh, which chair in this room, you could probably tell uh, what time is it approximately. Fact is, uh, so that's kind of the sundown. And so God, and this sundown involves steps. So the shadows that would be cast by the, uh, upon the steps would indicate what time it was. And so God gives a sign where the, he caused the shadow to basically move back 10 steps. As a confirmation. That's basically, you know, how God does that. Uh, commentators, scholars are agreed that we don't know. Okay, so that's really good. That's professional uh, scholarly approval. That's uh, it's a miracle of some sort. Whether he did it through natural science means or whether he just drew it to supernatural means. Well, it's ultimately supernatural. But we just don't know. God brought this. God caused the staircase to go back. The shadow on the staircase to go back. So, this is simply what happens. This is Hezekiah's illness. How does this illness that Hezekiah face prepare God's people for the coming judgment? And it's at this point that's helpful to remember that there is a connection between in Israel between the king and the nation, a very close connection. There's a promise uh, to Abraham and his seed. There's a promise given to David and his seed and his descendants that they will never that they that they. God's going to establish a throne for one of David's uh, descendants, whom that throne will last for, will be everlasting. So this this connection between the king and the nation or the people, there's always this close connection. Not only is the king a leader and example for the nation, but he symbolizes the nation. Even today, our leaders would symbolize our nation if our own president or was, was hurt or was assassinated or, or something happened to our White House, we would feel it as a nation, even though it's far away from us. Because this, he, this White House and the president symbolizes us as a nation, but much more so for the king of Israel. What happens to the king here then is really a foreshadowing of what will happen to the nation. Both king and nation face a threat. Both, uh, that is a threat of of death or destru- or defeat at the hands of an enemy. Both are given a reprieve from that threat. Hezekiah gets 15 years. Jerusalem, Judah, is delivered from the hands of Sennacherib or Syria. But for both, also, the reprieve is temporary. After 15 years, Hezekiah is going to eventually die. And the hint for Judah is that after some time, just that, though they've been delivered from Assyria, they will still go into captivity. They will go and they will, they will be captured by an enemy nation. They will be brought captive to a land that is not their own. And we're going to see this fleshed out. And we, you, know, you don't necessarily see it here in this particular part of the text. But when we look at all of chapter 30 and 39 together, we see this foreshadowing that points, as we'll see, it'll connect when we get to chapter 39. So in response, in response to the, uh, his healing, we then come, Hezekiah's healing, we then come to the second scene 
of this passage that prepare God's people for judgment. And that is Hezekiah's praise in verses 9 through 22. Quite significantly, neither parallel, either 2 Kings 20 nor 2 Chronicles 32, contain this praise of Hezekiah. And so that's very telling for us that this praise is significant. It sort of helps us interpret and understand even the text as well. So and we see Hezekiah's response of praise to his healing in verses 9 through 22. Now we read verse 9. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after his illness and recovery. <coughs> verse 9 to 22 is a written record of Hezekiah's thoughts following his illness and healing, much as like when you and I might write journal after something. Uh, he was journaling and writing uh, his response to his healing. And it's, what's great is because he's writing it after his illness, after his recovery. And what's cool is that he sees, and kind of as he looks back upon his life, he sees God's hand upon his life. And that's just usually how it is, right? In the midst of trials, we're like, where, God, where are you? I need your help. But after the trial, then we look back and say, oh, man, God was there all along. And that's kind of where we get that blessing. We see that here uh, from Hezekiah's writing. Hezekiah, in reflection, records his thoughts for not only his generation, but future ones to know and understand so that they might respond rightly when their turn comes to face trials and the judgment of God. He writes quite, we might say in our day, vulnerably, transparently as well. As we see in verses 9 through 14, Hezekiah is honest. Hezekiah writes of his despair in verse 10 to 14. 10 to 14. Read along, verse 10. And notice he, get, he, it's, he starts writing in poetry. So this is considered a psalm. It's like the psalms. Or it's, it's, like a, it's, it's, it's worship of God. It is uh, written in poetical form, uh, perhaps even put to a tune, but we see uh, written in poetry. Verse 10 to 14. I said... In the middle of my life, I am to enter the gates of Sheol. I am to be deprived of the rest of my years. I said, I will not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I will look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. Like a shepherd's tent, my dwelling is pulled up and removed from me. As a weaver, I rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day until night, you make an end of me. I compose my soul until morning. Like a lion, so he breaks all my bones. From day until night, you make an end of me. Like a swallow, like a crane, so I twitter. I moan like a dove. My eyes look wistfully to the heights. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. Be my security. Verse 15. Oh, well, i got to carry away. No, that's for ne- the next section. <coughs> but we see here his despair in verse 10 to 14. It reads, uh, <coughs> it is, a, if you call it a psalm, it's, uh, it would be in the form of a lament psalm. He's lamenting his condition. He's telling God uh, and telling others of this the pitiful condition of his life, this sorrowful condition, the, the depths of his despair. And the depths of his despair, why he despairs of this, is that he laments that he's going to die, but particularly he's going to die in the middle of his life, in the prime of his life. He's not dying in his old age. You know, when you, after living 70 or 80 years, He's dying in the middle of his life. 
He's going to enter the gates of Sheol. The gates of Sheol. The Sheol is the place of the, of, of the dead, where the dead dwell in the Old Testament. And the gates, how do you enter into the place of, of the, that place of the dead? Is through death. He's going to enter into death. And we see that actually uh, the gates of Hades. Uh, Jesus used that term in referring to death. Verse 11 tells, indicates that he's going to miss seeing the Lord and, as well as the different, people, um, the different people in his life in the land of the living. Verse 12 to 14 convey his total despair. Verse 12 tells us that indicates that he realized his life is abruptly ending. He's, his, uh, his life is, is, like a, uh, is like a string, and God's going to cut him from the loom. He's going to cut his life short. Verse 13, he, he knows that his complete brokenness, his body being ill and is about to die, is all God's doing. He says, God, it's like a lion who comes and breaks all his bones. He can't help but miss, as he, as he talks about this, that who does he attribute all this is happening from, or who's causing this? It's God. God is the one who's cutting cutting him off in the loom. God is the one who breaks all his bones. And so verse 14, he constantly cries out to God. He knows that God's sovereignty is, is, is causing these things, bringing these things to pass in his life. And even in his crying out, he's also in despair because he's weary. He, NAS says, my eyes look wistfully to the heights. But the idea is that he's, he's getting weary. He's, he's tired as he look, constantly looks upward to God for help. You can almost hear him saying in this prayer, Oh, how long, O oh Lord? How long? How long before I die? Hezekiah is keeping it real here, if you will. It is probably, uh, as I meditated upon these words this past week, I was thinking to myself, this is, this is what it feels like to face one's mortality. I'm not come to, ever come to the place where I've actually had to face actually an, an illness that leads to death. I was just thinking about it, the despair that he feels. And there are times when I think that when the, time, when the time comes for me to face death, I would not be surprised if I felt the same despair. Maybe some of you feel that despair. Maybe you know people facing death, facing the immortality, experiencing despair. It's at those times of despair that God-given faith looks up. Just as we can't be courageous without being afraid, we can't exercise our faith without the, the despair, the desperateness. Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. I'm at my end. God, help me. That's what he does at the end of verse 14. He calls upon God to be his security. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
Hezekiah's despair that we see here just in, in vividness is this encouragement to us. As, just as a kind of a pastoral aside, if you will, in this life, there's going to be a lot of despair. It's just the bitterness. Later on, he's going to talk about the bitterness of our soul, my soul. In this world, we will face bitterness of soul. And men, brothers and sisters, you and I are going to face despair at different times. And if you, are, you know the brother or sister in despair, one of the greatest disservices that you can do for them when they're facing despair is to tell them that they shouldn't feel that way. And they should just simply trust God. We mean well. We mean well. But we should allow our brothers and sisters to experience despair, the emotions of sorrow and fear, because God gives it to us to drive us to cry out to God. Now, they can become get to a place where it becomes sinful, where responding to, dis, to despair and fear leads them to not trust God, to do, take things in their own hands. And then you come alongside and encourage them. But sometimes we just, need to, we just need to listen to them. Lend our ear, listen, understand, hear their pain, hear their sorrow. Sometimes that's just one they just to, to, they, for us to understand. And you listen to them long enough, especially if they're believers in Christ, they will get to that place. And they'll say, yeah, I know I need to trust God. Would you pray for me to trust the Lord? It's okay to express when you face trials that it's hard. I know especially as a young believer, it would be real frustrating, and I wouldn't know why it was so frustrating. When I'd share trials with my brothers, fellow brothers and sisters, and then they immediately would say, well, here's a Bible verse. Why don't you do it? You're sinning. You're not trusting the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean on your own understanding. Quickly tell me what the Bible says. It's short, but it was a quick a, a quickness to try to solve our solutions, our problems. What was wrong is that short they're shortchanging it, allowing not allowing me to experience the fullness of the depths of despair, so that I would then respond, have the opportunity to learn from that, learn from it. Sometimes we will, I do that with my own child. I notice I just illustrated, but we want, don't want her to experience difficulties and trials. I want to fix everything for her. So we're realizing that sometimes with an appropriate wisdom, I need to let her experience trials, difficulties, the, the sorrow of, of, you know, falling down on her knee and try to, instead of trying to, you know, let, let her fall so she would learn to cry out to me. Cry out to, eventually learn to cry out to God. Let's be there to help one another. Let's, so I just kind of just, that is an aside, really. But it's, I think, illustrated here when we see the Hezekiah's despair mentioned. Your sympathy and compassion in the midst when brothers and sisters go through trials, can be a great encouragement to them. 
Now, Hezekiah's psalm moves from despair to faith as he reflects on this in, his, in verses 15 to 22. He reflects on his deliverance in 15 to 22, how God delivers him. I love uh, these verses too. Uh, verse 15 to 22 of chapter 38. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me and he himself has done it. Here the explicitly stated, Hezekiah makes clear that it's God has done all this to me. I will wander about all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit. That is bitterness. These are, these are things that we, our lives are characterized. And then verse 16, end of verse 16, Oh, restore me to health and let me live. Lo, for my own welfare I had great bitterness. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. It is the living who gives thanks to you as I do today. A father tells his sons about your faithfulness. The Lord will surely save me. So we will play my songs on stringed instruments all the days of our life at the house of the Lord. Hezekiah responds here with humble submission to the sovereign Lord. He recognizes God's hand upon his life. And so he prays to God for restoration and health in verse 16. He realizes too, furthermore, in verse 17, that, that it, all this is happening, this bitterness of his soul, this trial in his life, this sickness is for his own welfare. Verse 17 says, for my own welfare, my own well-being, I had great bitterness. God brings bitterness and trials in our lives for our well-being. For our good. That's profound truth when we grasp it. And God, and we know this, you can go to Romans 8, 28, we see this to be true. We see this also taught, that God causes all things, including the bitterness of our lives, to point us to him. Verse 17 is a, just, a, just a great verse in that it, he recognizes that it was, in the NAS it says, it is you who has kept my soul from the pit. But the better translation there, and uh, there's a, is that it is you who has loved my soul from the pit of nothingness. Literally, that's what it says. Loved my soul. He's been, I think the ESV translates it this way, and NIV and, uh, as well. But the idea is that God's love for us is what has delivered us from, he, he, from the depths of the, of the pit of nothingness. It's because he loves us. He loves our soul that he delivers us. And what's more, it's because of his love. He, he casts all of Hezekiah's sins behind him. He recognized, Hezekiah recognizes that this, this judgment upon him is really because of his sin. It's, 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 it's some, it's, uh, or all his death, all death and all, is, is ultimately related to sins. But God is going to cast his sins behind his back. And so the response to his deliverance, Hezekiah, verse 18 to 20, gives thanks. He tells he's going to give thanks to God. He's going to tell of his faithfulness. For the salvation of the Lord leads the people of God to worship him all the days of their lives. And so the psalm that... Hezekiah writes here ends with worship. It's just like a, it's just exactly like any of the lament psalms we see in the Old Testament in the in the Psalter. 
that usually there's a lament that begins with trial and, and difficulties, but then ultimately with eyes of faith, it, we turn to trust in the Lord, and then we see God's deliverance, and then we worship God. Is that the pattern of your life? When the bitterness of soul reaches you? When you go through trials? Yes, it's difficult. You despair. You, you're going through, uh, through that trial, and then you cry out to God, and he delivers you, or he gives you hope, and gives you encouragement. Do we respond in praise? That's the pattern here we see. Again, uh, the lesson, or how this ties in for the people of God is this. For the people of God, what happens to the king is a symbol of what will happen to the nation. And as God delivers their king, so the implication that is he will deliver them. More importantly, as God forgives the sins of their king, so he will also forgive their sins. And this will be so important when they are taken into captivity to Babylon. They will remember that just as God delivered their king, Hezekiah, in Jerusalem, so he will deliver them one day. And just as and it was, though it was because of their sins that they are taken into captivity in Babylon, so God will not hold their sins against them forever. God will eventually forgive them of their sins. He will bring them, because they're his chosen people, he's going to bring them to repentance. He's going to bring them back to the Lamb. This section ends with two verses that are oddly placed. Verse 21 and 22. Uh, just if you, have we had time, you would compare St. Kings 20. And you find that these two verses, 21 22 here, actually belong, at least in, in, chronologically in our chapter, between verse 6 and 7. Chronologically, that's where they belong. But for some reason, Isaiah puts verse 21 22 at the end of this chapter. We read 21 22, read this now. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a kick of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Then Hezekiah had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? And so we already know. I mean, we already saw earlier the sign is that the shadow would go back uh, 10 steps. But we also see here, verse 21, that simply the means of healing was that uh, Isaiah, God told Isaiah to tell Hezekiah to basically make a cake of figs and apply it to Hezekiah's boil. And that would heal. And that would heal him. So we understand what it says. But the interpretive question is, why is it out of place? Why is that out of place chronologically? Now, we, it doesn't say to, in this text why. Well, this is the reason why it's out of place chronologically, okay? So we, we can't be 100% dogmatic about this. It's an interpretive issue. And, uh, but we've, we've already seen... This, this, this out-of-place chronology already simply by chapters 38 through 9, right? Chapters 38 and 39 are recorded out of order chronologically, but rather are recorded in a thematic pattern to introduce Babylonian captivity that is going to come. So it would be not too far to think that these two verses exist for this very similar purpose, that they're not here just to tell us chronologically what took place, but they're to give us a clue on a theme, a thematic thing, a thematic point that God wants to make as a result of these two verses. And again, I want to add, don't be dogmatic about this. In fact, I've, I, I, 
I have not found, uh, I'll tell you that I've re- read, you know, the various commentaries, and I have not found uh, any satisfactory answer, okay? So the answer I'm going to give you is simply my answer. But I think it's a good answer. And, uh, you know, if, if I haven't found a dissertation written on it, so you, you can write a dissertation on this uh, someday and get a doctor, okay? But I believe that these verses emphasize, are here, taken out of order, placed here to emphasize the weak faith of Hezekiah. To emphasize the weak faith of Hezekiah. First of all, the simple, God had given, throughout to Isaiah, a simple instruction to Hezekiah. Here's how you can be healed. Take a cake of figs, apply to your boil, and you'll be healed. You'll recover. That's the, that's, and you would think that, okay, Hezekiah's just going to go do that. But Hezekiah then instead asked for a sign. What then is the sign? I need a, I, I like a sign. For this, and God gives him the sign. But perhaps what we see here is that Hezekiah responded to his trial, to the to the solution. To the uh, God uses various means to heal us. Whether he uses a cake of figs, whether he does it miraculously, or he does it through a doctor, or he just does it through the, our our regular body's healing. God is behind the healing. But in this case, he tells to take a cake of figs and put it on the boil. Uh, you can apply a little salve to it, essentially. But perhaps Hezekiah's response to this request, like, if you remember, Naaman did in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman, who had a, was, who had a case of leprosy, and when he went to Elisha and asked him for uh, healing, Elisha told him, well, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. And remember what Naaman said? Wash myself in the river. I thought he was going to come out and wave his hands and, and call upon his God. Aren't there great rivers in my own land that I could have washed in that I didn't have to come here and he'd tell me to go wash in the river seven times? Lack of faith, Naaman had. He couldn't believe that healing would come from God simply through washing in the Jordan seven times. And perhaps Hezekiah has that same thought here. And so he asked for a sign to boost his faith. So there you have that. My radical view. Isaiah had delivered God's, but Isaiah had delivered God's promise and instruction. But Hezekiah, though the righteous and king that he was, his faith was yet not as strong as it appeared. This is a clue that Hezekiah, though he's known to be a good king, though he's a a righteous man, though he did great things for the Lord, he's not perfect. And you would laugh if I told you, what brought me to despair on Sunday. But I was brought to despair on Sunday, last Sunday. Hezekiah, though is a great example of faith, is still simply flesh, still dwelling in a fallen nature, still weak to temptation, and he gives in to that temptation. He has a weak faith, and we, it leads him. To sin, which leads to our third, our third, which is revealed in our third scene, and it kind of brings us to conclusion. I know we're running out of time, so we want to just go through this pretty quickly. <clears throat> Hezekiah's pride, Hezekiah's pride. Verse 39. One 
2. At that time, Merodach Baladon, son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard they had been sick and had recovered. Hezekiah was pleased and showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and his whole armory and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. So news of Hezekiah's healing had reached the king of Babylon. At this time, Babylon was not yet the mighty empire that it would become. It was a vassal state of Assyria, just like Judah was. But Merodach Baladon, uh, this rebel king, we've heard about him. We kind of mentioned him back in uh, when we went through Isaiah 21. If you want to go listen to Isaiah 21, you can hear all the details about Merodach Baladon. But he had been basically known as a rebel king. He would often lead Babylon in rebellion. And in this time, he was actually in rebellion against Assyria. He was trying to uh, reject uh, <coughs> Sennacherib's reign. And so he, but in this case, he invited other, uh, other Assyrian vassal nations to join him. And Judah was one of those. And so he takes this occasion of Hezekiah's healing to send a delegation. Under the guise of congratulations, he wanted to basically talk to King Hezekiah and understand, see if they could create an alliance that they were joined together against Assyria. Now, receiving, Hezekiah was pleased by this recognition, this from the king of Babylon. And he, and so he, what he did was that he, well, being the great, kind of a good host, he basically showed, uh, maybe showed off even, the, the whole delegation, his, his whole kingdom. He kind of, you know, uh, it's like people come to your house. You want to show them your house. You just like, so show them everything. Show them your your garage and your closets and your you know all your master bed, bedrooms and you know those kinds of things. You know that's uh, sometimes it's a, there could be a little bit of pride in that. Uh, but he gave the tour that included his treasuries and his armory. Okay, armory too. So what he was showing them is he's showing them how much money, resources he has, and he's showing them how strong he is militarily, his military mind. It's likely that Hezekiah knew the real reason for the delegation, and he showed them these things to show that he was a worthy ally. And this despite God's repeated warnings of judgment upon the nations that we saw earlier in Isaiah. God's going to just judge all these nations. Don't, don't put your trust in these nations. Yet Hezekiah, that's exactly what he does. He puts his trust in the nations. Verse 3 through 8, we read, we'll finish up. Then Isaiah the prophet came to him, King Hezekiah, and said to him, What did these men say, and from where have they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he thought, For there will be peace and truth in my days. God's response through the prophet Isaiah reveal that the days are coming when Judah will be carried away to Babylon. He basically, I, God sends Isaiah to reprove Hezekiah for his trust in the nation of Babylon. He tells him that because of this, this pride and arrogance that he has, 
because of his trust in another nation, his failure to trust God, but his desire to trust in, in an, the nation of Babylon, God is going to take the whole nation. He's going to, everything that you showed him is going to be taken to Babylon. And what's more, your sons, some of your sons are going to become officials. Well, not just officials, but the word literally is eunuchs. Eunuchs. Slaves who will give their life to serve the king of Babylon. And this, of course, would be fulfilled, we know, in the Babylonian captivity beginning in 605 B.C., again in 597 B.C., and finally in 586 B.C. And the days are coming. Is the, and, we see, and we see this uh, clearly promised by God to Hezekiah, to Judah, to the people of God. And therefore, they must be prepared for it. <coughs> And it's encouragement to them to call upon God. Hezekiah's response in verse 8 even shows, can, continues to show his, his selfish focus. He said, oh, man, you know, he says outwardly, he says, oh, that's a good word. It's a good word, you know, great preaching, you know. But they didn't really think, well, phew, that doesn't apply to me. <laughs> you ever walk out of the word of God, he says, oh, that was good preaching, man. That, I hope man, so-and-so really needs that. That's kind of the same attitude, a selfishness. Think about it, the word of God's for others when it's for you. In fact, it's kind of ironic. He thinks, oh, there's going to be peace and security in my days. Sinatra is about to knock on his door pretty soon. So he's kind of a little, he's overstated a little bit. Hezekiah's response, though he was a good king, showed that his selfishness and his pride and his arrogance. In fact, he failed the test. According to 2 Chronicles 32, 31, God actually left Hezekiah to himself in this, in this particular uh, situation, circumstance, in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. It was a test from God, this whole circumstance with Merodach Babylon showing up. Would he tr- put his trust in Babylon or would he put his trust in God? In fact, verse 25 of 2 Chronicles 32 tells us that Hezekiah's heart was proud. He was proud. And I think this is just a great humble reminder, a reminder, to, a reminder to us to remain humble. Because no matter how godly we, you may be, we all still possess a sinful nature and all with evil desires. And that makes us prone to sin. And it leads us sometimes to not trust in God as we ought. And it puts a, we trust in ourselves. We trust in man. We don't trust in God. We fail to trust in God. And it's because of Hezekiah's sin that the day is coming when he, the nation of Judah, Jerusalem, the people of God would face a judgment under the hands of Babylon. But for you and me, it's because of our sin that the day is coming when we each will face God's judgment as well. In the greater backdrop of Isaiah, it's not just days are coming, but the day is coming, right? We've looked at the day of the Lord is coming. When the Messiah will come, when the Lord will return to judge the world. And for the people of God, that is the greater judgment that they must all be prepared for. We all fall short of God's glory. Judgment is coming. But that is why, like the people of God in Isaiah's day, the people of God in this day must look to the Lord for deliverance. We must look to the one who is promised throughout Isaiah, but especially promised in Isaiah 40 to 66. 
the suffering servant that we'll look at in the years to come. That we must look to the son who is promised, the son whose birthday we celebrate in a few weeks to deliver us from our sin, our Lord Jesus Christ. May you and I, brothers and sisters, as we walk upon this earth, as we face trials and we experience the bitterness of soul, remember that these are for our welfare. They're teaching us to trust in the Lord because one day, the day is coming when we will all stand before Christ to be judged. May we be found clothed in Christ, the great deliverer whom God sent 2,000 years ago to be born of a virgin, to live and to die, to be raised from the grave for our sins. Deliver us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for these truths. Help us to remember soberly that the day is coming. Father, prepare our hearts. Make sure, help us to make sure that we have a trust in Christ, that we are trusting in Christ to deliver us. Thank you for the birth of your and the giving of your son, whose birth we celebrate. Help us to worship him, him alone. Thank you, God. For being our deliverer. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.